Hey, it's Monday, January 12th. I'm Luke Thomas. This is the Monday Morning Analyst. Today on the podcast, RFA 22 results, the first Polaris Pro, and Dusty Hernandez-Harrison headlines, the first Rock Nation show. Have you ever felt? Are you listening? Damn. Now, there was no Bellator, there was no UFC, there was no World Series of Fighting last weekend, but there was RFA 22, so let's talk about that. Not going to break down every fight in the card, but just some highlights of things to look out for. The event was headlined by Chidi Enjokawani, Anthony's brother from UFC action previously, um, versus Gilbert Smith, who you may remember from the guy who got triangled by Bubba Smith in the Octagon, which was his only UFC appearance, I believe. Um, in any event, the fights that I want to highlight were just the ones where the guys look good or there was something to take away. First of all, Kevin Gray is a guy you want to keep your eye on. He's a uh, flyweight. He fought Joey Eisenbraun. Um, you know, listen, when you watch guys on RFA, you have to be understanding of the level they're at. They've got a lot of physical tools, you know. They may have a background in wrestling or some other kind of background that they're transitioning from. they get a lot of jiu-jitsu guys over there, too, some, some decorated ones. And they're still putting the pieces of their game together. But for that level, very impressed by Kevin Gray. First of all, looked like a physical specimen. I mean, in hugely bricked up, but still mobile, not slow, um, you know, was able to have great reaction time when he needed to. Still putting some of the pieces of his game together mentally, and what I mean by that is, you could see him in positions, and you could see the wheels turning about, my my hand goes here, my arm goes here, what's the next method of attack, but once he got the ball rolling, uh, or, you know, if he already had an idea of what to do, he was really dynamic. Um, you know, he had some issues chaining takedowns together, he'd shoot a double and then try to go for the clinch. And then trip him over the back and had some issues with that. You know, a lot of times when you go from the clinch to sort of a, a you know, when you, when you drop a level, that's a lot of, that's a great way to chain takedowns together if the first one fails, particularly if you start from the clinch. He had a little bit of issue with that, but was nevertheless dogged in pursuing a takedown even if he had some missteps. Um, sensational finish. So he had the guy against the fence. Um, he had, was trying to take him down. They had, I think, one knee on the ground or at least a hand. Anyway, they were clearly grounded by the current rules. So he, he, and you could see he wanted to bang him out with a knee to the face, couldn't do it. So hit him with a shot to the rib. Uh, and when he did, you see the guy immediately drop. And when he dropped, he uh, did the old Anthony Pettis thing where I hurt you and then sit for a uh, submission, sat for a, uh, a, a, a guillotine, no arm in, you know, just fully tight, and the guy tapped from there. Great. So the win came about, I believe. Um, I don't have the time right now. Let me dig that up real quick. But. Nevertheless, Kevin Gray, keep an eye on him. This is not somebody who's going to be ready to uh, challenge you know, Demetrius Johnson anytime soon. But um, certainly a guy who you know, could be a great addition to the flyweight division if he can keep going. By the way, has a great nickname, Pocket Herc, like Pocket Hercules. Yeah, the, the end came uh, at 349 of the first round. All right, so another fight you want to pay attention to, Mark Dickman took on Donald Sanchez. This was a welterweight bout. Uh, Dickman, you may not know, is a guy at a one-kick Knicks gym. Um, is was an NIA, NAIA 149-pound national champion. Um, you know, his striking looked okay for the length of the bout. Sanchez is one of these guys out of Greg Jackson's gym. Not one of the more elite guys, but certainly one part of the team. Um, so what I liked from him was he had, from, from, from Dickman anyway, um, you know, did a decent job when Sanchez pushed forward, circling out, you know, not moving straight back the whole time. I thought that was really good. 
Um, you could tell he was physically strong. He had that old Daniel Cormier pick him up underneath the crotch, lift him, and then turn him, kind of dump. Um, but he was sort of renowned for his jiu-jitsu. That was the sort of the, the showcase piece of his um, repertoire. He looked fantastic, man. He looked really qu- kind of unbelievable. Um, I would say that when he got there, he did this really cool thing where he he hooked the he was in half guard, right? And so he hooked the inside of he used his right hand to lift up the inside of Sanchez's leg, and then came around the back almost like a backwards hook around the head, which which one if you can pass, you can go right to north south, you can move around. So that was an option for him. Um, but what he was really doing, which was, which is even cooler, was he was using that. I've talked about this before. In jiu-jitsu, you always put something in and, and then take it away. Like you have a replacement there before you just move. You have to have things have to be replaced so that you can hold a spot um, when you're moving a hand or a foot or something like that, uh, particularly hand-to-foot action. And he did that. So he had the hand in here, which he used to free open the space. He took a back step pass, so now he's in side control, but he's still got the hand here, which he uses to then walk around and put his left leg where his, sorry, where his arm is, and he uses that to then lock up a triangle. So the leg came over the top, he removed his hand, and he sunk it underneath the hand, or sunk it underneath the neck, I should say, of Sanchez. From there, uh, he had a triangle, not one that was probably going to finish Sanchez, but certainly had him immobilized. But then he goes for the Kimura grip. Can't quite get it because Sanchez is on the opposite hip. So he literally like uses the his position to, like like a pancake, flatten him out and then use his momentum to push. Because if your hands are here, to me, you're close to your body, you're strong. The further you go away, that's the weaker you get. So Sanchez was all here. So he had to get his arm to go like that, right? Pushes the arm out, uses his body to reoccupy the space so he can't get it. Keeps his elbow against the hip so Sanchez can't, you know, uh, uh, do, do the same. And then eventually turns it over. I mean, he was all the way on his shoulder turning it over and eventually got the tap. Really looked good from Mark Dickman. Uh, uh, impressive. The win came at 137 of the first round. Uh, another one to take a quick note of, Ricky Musgrave defeated Alvin Robinson. Alvin Robinson, you might remember from his UFC days. Not a spectacular run, but one. I think he fought Kenny Florin and maybe a couple of other guys. Uh, Robinson's a decorated, not decorated, but yeah, yeah. No, he's a very good jiu-jitsu player. Uh, I would put it that way. You know, um, respectable level of talent. And he was giving Musgrave all he could handle, was getting the takedown, was using like the guillotine to pass. So, you know, you're trying to fight the guillotine and then here comes the, the move to mount. But was always able to sneak a knee inside, was always sort of like responding to the pass, never letting, um, you know, Robinson get, get too far. Uh, and I would say, yeah, not just the knee that saved him, but hand control saved him. Whenever he, whenever he would, he, he never... Early on, I think he allowed himself to get cross-faced, but then after that, he didn't. Um, so what happened, Robinson sits for an arm bar, but you know, there's one of these arm bars, maybe Rousey does it and a couple of other people might do it, but it's almost like a sacrifice throw. A sacrifice throw is where you actually go to your back to throw somebody, right? Um, and this is what he did. He sits to the arm bar. I think he tried to lock up a Kimura grip to set it up, but Musgrave came on top, elbow already past the hips, and he let it go from there. So what happens? They eventually get into a scramble where uh, they're against the fence. Robinson is trying to take his back. Musgrave spins into him, almost spins into uh, a guillotine, but immediately is fighting the hand as soon as he spins, and then stands up, separates, drives, and this is, they must have been right near a microphone, drives a hard knee to Robinson's body, which immediately hurts him. But as he's falling, he takes another knee to the face. Now, the stoppage was kind of weird because he was on top, Sort of by the book, it was like Robinson wasn't defending himself. 
Robinson basically flat on his stomach, Musgrave pounding on him. Um, but uh, you can see he wasn't that hurt. He just couldn't really move. Uh, or maybe he was complaining about shots at the back of the head. It wasn't really all that clear. But in any case, Musgrave's best win of his career by far. I don't know if he can make any kind of noise in the UFC, but you might actually see him after a win like that. The win came at 355 of uh, the first round via TKO. And then in the main event, Chidi Njikawani taking on Gilbert Smith. Uh, this was a five-round bout. He won, Njikawani did, 49-46 on all four judges' scorecards. I mean, look, what do you say about Chidi Njikawani, you know? Um, striking looks great. You know, there's not there's not much to say about it. It seems instinctual. It seems what he loves to do. When he really uses it, it's deadly. It's super diverse. He has a great jab. He can throw a flying knee. He's got all different variety of kicking attacks. Um, he can strike moving backwards. I mean, he can do just about everything you would want. Like, his striking is definitely good enough for him to cause people problems in the UFC. But I just don't see the kind of progress on the other forms of his game to give me confidence that he can do a whole lot at the next level. I just don't see it. And I could be wrong, and I like... Every time I've inter interviewed his brother, Anthony, they've been nothing but cool guys. Um, Chidi was with him when he when Anthony was at UFC 145. Um, we all interviewed him backstage. He was a cool guy, you know? Um, and again, there's nothing you can say about his striking where you could look at him and be like, he's just not ready. You know, his striking is great. But like, for example, there were so many times, man, where, um, you know... It's, like, look at how Anthony Pettis defends a takedown. He either defends it against the fence if he can't get it off of you, but what he normally does is he breaks the takedown attempt and then it creates separation. I keep talking about it. I really believe this is something that folks just don't pay enough attention to. It's not enough to stop the takedown. You have to get away from them. Lots of different ways to do that from lots of different positions. But you could see Andrew Kawani wouldn't do it. You know, he'd have a nice sprawl, but it would just lay there like he was surfing on someone. He wouldn't use it to then, you know, push down the head and then control a hand and get away. He was never, because if you can force someone to get away, you have to restart the position that's exhausting. And Smith was, I thought after the third round, Smith was going to be done. He was so tired, and he wasn't. And the other weird things, it wasn't just defensively, um, it was offensively. So, like, for example, God, this was driving me crazy. This was in the later rounds. So, they were in half guard. Smith was underneath, either because he failed. I mean, Smith was, like, diving for ankles. He was so tired by the fourth or fifth round. And what would happen? And Jukawani would be, uh, you know, on top in half guard. And he would be using the front of his elbow to create space to keep um, Smith from coming up. But Smith always had the underhook. Smith always had one elbow on the ground, posted, and then the other hand underhooking underneath. You know, and listen, you got to re-pummel in, man. Like, they're going to get you if you do that. If you, have, if you let them post on their back elbow, and then the other hand comes up and digs for the underhook. Oh, and then I even forgot about this. And then, so this side is coming up on the underhook. The same side leg was trapping the uh, the outside leg of Njikawani. Dude, you're going to get taken down if they do that. They're going to reverse you. They're going to reverse you. You need to take this post away, and you got to re-pummel in on this side. Every time, man. Every time. Especially if you want to get away, you know. Um, or if you don't, if you, let's say, okay, let's say you lost the underhook battle there. This is something I know a lot of tall people do. It was taught to me. I'm not very good at it. I'm still trying to work it out. I've caught a couple guys with it, but I wouldn't call it anything that I'm even remotely good at, but I can see it, you know? And Njikawani fits the profile. If you lose an underhook battle here, okay, damn it, they got me. What am I going to do? Darce choke time. Come in underneath. You don't even have to pass. They can hold you in half guard. In fact, it might even be better, depending on how you can do it. Circling all the way underneath, and then come on top for the Darce choke. You see it all the time. At least threaten with it so that they go back down, and then you can create the separation that you need to create. Um, you just don't see any of that. You just don't see any of that. And so that for me, that's the problematic part. It's like, 
I, I will admit his wrestling against the fence was better. He got taken down a couple times early, but then stopped it after that. I'll give him credit there. Again, not one bad word to say about his striking, but it just feels like he gets to these static positions in either wrestling exchanges or grappling exchanges and just wants to hold until it dies. But it doesn't die. You have to make it die. You have to create separation. You need to find... There's just a lot of fine-tuning left for that portion of his game. Again, striking looked amazing, but whatever. Um, so he won 49-46 across the board. That's the only little MMA event of the weekend of note. There were probably some other ones, I'm sure, but only one I paid attention to. Uh, let's transition gears if we can. Polaris Pro was this past weekend. That was a great jiu-jitsu event. Um, oh, by the way, let's go back to RFA real quickly. Fighter of the card, I'd give it to uh, Kevin. Uh, I'd give it to Mark Dickman. Kevin Gray gets honorable mention. Um, and I'd give that card, again, I'm going to, instead of giving him card, I was giving card, uh, ratings on a 10-point system. I'm going to do it on like a 5, like you're watching, or even a 4 maybe. Let's do a 4. How about that? I'll just make S up. Let's do a 4, uh, you know, 4 stars like a, like a restaurant or a, um, or a movie. Anything 2.5 uh, or above gets great as I would consider a recommendation. Two and a half and above, I consider a recommendation. Two is like a, okay? Two and a half and above, it's like, this is a good place. I would give, uh, I would give RFA 22 probably overall a two and a half. Um, Polaris Pro, I'm going to give a two. Uh, and I would give the man of that card, uh, the grappler of that card, probably to Keenan with Gary Tonin, Tonin being um, the um, runner-up. Listen, I don't know when folks are going to realize, talking about Polaris Pro, I think they, they did their best. First events are hard to carry off. They had a weird-looking ring announcer or mat announcer, whatever you want to call him. Little other guy was in the trench coat mafia. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but with just a weird look. Um, so there was that. Although I did think the, the lead, the play-by-play -play commentator for Polaris was great. You could tell he trained, but didn't try to get too involved. I thought the color guys were pretty bad. Um, the broadcast itself didn't feel like it had a lot of build to it. It didn't feel like it had a lot of growth to it. It just kind of felt flatlined the whole time. I had issues with my stream, although I'm told a lot of other people did not. So I just want to acknowledge that. Some people had a great experience. Mine was so-so in terms of technology. Um, and I I just upgraded my internet here, so shouldn't be a reason for that. Never had an issue with Metamorphs or, or anything else. Um, listen, I'm not going to go over all these as well because there's no time and there's no interest. Here's what I would say. Sub only with time limits does not make sense. And you're going to sit here and you're going to tell me, but look at all the submissions that happened on this card. I think there were four of them. And, and you can point to any ones that happened in Metamorris. Guys, what you need to do, just take a Saturday out. It won't take much of your time. Go to a, there are many of these across the country. Here in, uh, in D.C. area, we have one called U.S. Grappling. It's based out of Richmond, about two hours from here. Uh, it's sub only and no time limit. All the matches. That's it. That's it. When you see that, and you see how long it takes for those matches to end, you realize putting 20 minutes on it or putting 15 minutes on it, especially at black belt, especially at world-class black belt, you're, you, yes, sometimes you're going to get a submission. You are setting yourself up for a lack of them. These matches routinely, routinely go 30 or 40 minutes. Uh, oh, there was one, the guy who teaches, the, runs the school that I train at. He had a two-hour match. Now, you could be saying, well, I don't want to see a two-hour match. I want to see a 15-minute match. Okay, fine. But I'm just trying to tell you, this is like huge anti-points thing going on where it's like sub-only is the real way. Sub-only is cool, but it just, when, when you realize that the, the half-life of a sub-only match, or well, half-life, when you realize that the average length of a sub-only match at Black Belt 
you know, I don't know what it is because no one's measured it, but I bet you it's way above 20 minutes. You begin to realize, well, why are we putting it at 20 minutes? This makes no sense. And Polaris was at 15. 15 minutes. So what happens? When you get your submissions, you get them when you get mismatches. You get them when uh, Michelle Nicolini goes up against Andre Galvan's wife. You get them when Gary Tonin goes against the MMA guy. Now, you did get one in the main event. Okay, fine. You're going to get them. They're going to happen. I'm not saying it's impossible to get a submission in the requisite time, but I just mean when you really see sub-only no time limit and you see how long the matches go, especially at the high level, you realize that there's this bit where it just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, that being said, uh, Max Campos and Dara O'Connell grappled to a draw. This was the opening one. Uh, Dara did what he could. Uh, Campos was stalling by the end, especially in the grip fighting. Um, Campos was working De La Hiva and I think some reverse De La Hiva. A uh, couple of different um, sweeps on both parts, but nothing to really write home about. Michelle Nicolini got a toehold on Angelica Galvan. This was an interesting match. Um, Angelica almost got triangled, but managed to fight out of it, reverse position, and nearly passed eventually Michelle Nicolini's guard, where you take the leg and you just drive it across your body. Couldn't quite secure it, but threatened. I thought that was pretty impressive. But in the end, they were just sort of like doing one of these, like two, they were competing on like two different versions of sitting guard. And out of nowhere, Angelica gives up a leg, which Nicolini dives on, you know, occupies the space with her body. Like, if you have a leg, and I put a body on top of it, my body is just bigger than your leg, right? Like, it's well, like one reason, like, you see a lot of small people do arm bars on big people is because your body, if you're small, it's not as big as my body, but your body is bigger than my arm, and so you can, can you know, you can win there. Anyway, um, so... So she jumps on the leg, gets to hold, and wins. Um, and I think, no, they didn't give a lot of time, but this was roughly around the 11-minute mark. Uh, Kit Dale, who had tonsillitis and was in the hospital, had, had a bummed-up ankle. He had an unremarkable bout with Victor Silviero. Silverio, excuse me. Uh, AJ Agazarm helped Oliver Geddes uh, with a bicep crush. Agazarm in control from the beginning, taking his mouthpiece and putting it on top of his cauliflower ear over and over. Slapped hands on one restart and then used it for a takedown, like kind of like a sucker punch and grappling. Um, says he was trying to put on a show. I mean, he was Gettys was just you know badly outmatched in this one. I have to say. Uh, and anyway, so it came from an armbar position, which he couldn't quite finish. He had previously had Gettys in an armbar spot where you know Gettys was flat out and it was uh, he was on, on top one side, not not from guard, and uh, couldn't finish it. And then used it for a bicep crush over the top. Um, Mike Fowler and Eduardo Tellis grappled to a draw. This, this match was not that great. Tellis stalled a lot on top uh, in half guard, and, and Fowler was sort of stuck underneath because Tellis wouldn't do a whole lot. Pablo Popovich and Eduardo Rios, uh, Hios, if you want to pronounce it, they grappled to a draw. Popovich looked pretty good, did a lot of top playing, a lot of um, uh, open, you know, Z guard, half guard stuff, knee shield from Rios, um, but, um, or Hios, however you pronounce it, Teta. But um, not, not a lot, again, just not a lot there. Uh, Tonin and Held, their match really went about three minutes and 30 seconds, roughly. Again, we, they, time limits, time, and, well, the winners were not announced via time, so kind of had that. Um, yeah, it was one of these exchanges, a lot of foot locking. And again, I guess you guys know that foot locks are just not something I, I have a, a requisite knowledge based on to speak very, to make any strong opinions about. But nevertheless, eventually... A lot of guys, you know, going for these like inverted reversals as they as their entry to a takedown, um, each coming up underneath one another. Tonin was mostly heading all the scrambles, um, but eventually just got a leg isolated over here, pushed it over here, and went for the heel hook as he rolled, got him there. 
Um, and then Keaton Cornelius with Dean Lister. The only takeaway with it there was that, you know, Dean, if you go watch these sub-only matches, he does this bit where, um, you know, it's, um, what do you want to say? It's like this high wire act, like, uh, like the guy, like the Discovery Channel donk, you know, who's like, who's like praising Jesus as he walks across the Grand Canyon. It's like that a little bit, you know, where it's like, how, how, watch the great Houdini put himself in these bad positions, like, and get out, you know? So Houdini's in a, in a tank, in a straitjacket that's got chains wrapped around it. Somehow he frees himself before he, before he suffocates and drowns. That's, that's, that, that's what Dean often does in some of these, um, you know, uh, super fights against guys who are really good. And that's a cool act, but I think it's when it's course, you know, uh, Josh Barnett has a way with him, and Keenan kind of made it look easy this time. Almost had a Kimura initially and couldn't finish it, and then locked up a triangle and Kimura, but then when Lister rolled to his base, the, the triangle was, was just too much. Uh, the takeaway there, though, was Keenan's wrestling was actually pretty good. He had a double that secured the final um, finish to a pass that was that was nicely done. Um, and cause, because Susie hit the double, Lister tried to lock up in a guillotine, so he hit a double and then jumped to the other side to defend it. So a lot of uh, Keenan's wrestling is definitely something that's come a long way. You see Boucher's talking about you know going to AK because he wanted to wrestle with Kane and he wanted to wrestle with DC and how much improved his wrestling. I don't know what Cornelius is doing. But he's doing a lot of it, and it looks pretty good. Um, real quickly, um, there were two boxing events. I'm not even going to rate them because it wasn't important. There was, I think, maybe three. I don't know if Showtime had one or not. I can't remember. But there were certainly Friday Night Fights on ESPN. I did not get a chance to watch. I apologize. I did see Dusty Hernandez Harrison, a DC kid, out of... Um, he was the headlining show on Fox Sports 1 for the first Rock Nation show. Now, this is the Jay-Z-backed bit uh it was terrible it was a terrible show the mat was black which was a disaster okay it looked terrible on tv i give the whole event uh you know a one and a half um there were you know <laughs> just utterly unremarkable anyway dusty hernandez harrison was in the main event by the way fabulous was like rapping during the show angie martinez i think formerly of hot 97 or maybe she's still at hot 97 i don't even know i don't even know she was like your I don't know, your ring MC or something. I don't even know exactly what you would call it. Not that she did a bad job exactly, but it was just like, hey, let's give jobs to our talented friends, even if this is not something that they're really accustomed to doing. Okay, I mean, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. Uh, but Hernandez Harrison, I've seen him box a couple of times. This was not one of his better showings. Um, he won, let's see, he won uh, 190, 190, and 99, So one judge gave uh, Tommy... Renown one round. Renown just had nothing, was doing nothing. A lot of covering up, tepid punching. Hernandez Harrison, though, just looked like he couldn't find the right range to attack him. Had a couple of good, a couple of good um, body attacks through, I think, the sixth or seventh round. But, you know, just there was, he just looked a little awkward in terms of trying to get his offense going for a guy who wasn't doing much in return. I wonder if he needed a more engaged opponent to maybe do something. So, listen, Hernandez Harrison's only 20 years old. And I'm not saying by any means this is like some sort of death knell for him. But I wouldn't call it a bad performance. I would not call it a good performance. Um, it was just something he needs to build on. And maybe it wasn't the right opponent. That's fine too. But um, you get it. A uh, couple things to watch out for. That's it for this week, by the way. A couple things to watch out for next week. We're going to start doing this too. Next week, uh, obviously, there's going to be what? UFC, Fight Night, whatever it is. 59, 60. Can't remember the number at this point. But Conor McGregor is going to fight Dennis Seaver. We'll break down that card on next Monday's edition. And on top of that, guys, let me recommend something to you. Okay? 
next weekend on Showtime because the fight for UFC is going to be on Sunday. On Saturday night, big deal, guys. Um, Stavern versus Wilder. Bermain Stavern, Berman Stavern versus Deontay Wilder. And uh, that's for the uh, that's a technically a heavyweight title fight, but it's it's an interesting one because Wilder is this physical specimen, six seven, got a big mouth, and is putting everyone away, but hasn't quite had the requisite um, you know um, win to say he's legit. Stavern beat Ariola twice, you know, and has sort of assumed as a title holder now uh, some measure of respect. So this is this is an interesting bout. Plus they have complete contrast in styles of personality. They can't stand each other, and it feels like because they're just not the same kind of guy. Um, should be interesting. That one should be a fun one. So check that out on Showtime on Saturday. I don't have any times. Uh, email me, luke.thomas at sbnation.com. Follow me on Twitter, at sbnlukethomas. And until next time, enjoy the fights.